So I was remembering this week about a time when I was younger, uh, probably in elementary school. Uh, my family, extended family, all lived in Canada, and so we would go up to Canada to visit, and we would drive usually uh, from San Diego, and this time we were driving to Calgary, Alberta, so it would be multiple days. And we were uh, going, heading north in the teeth of a storm, and on a particular day it was uh, about 40 degrees below zero or something in Montana. It was nighttime and we were driving in this Volkswagen Rabbit, if you can picture this, diesel. And we're cruising along, and all of a sudden, the engine starts to sputter. It's nighttime, we're out in Montana in the middle of nowhere, and the diesel fuel had frozen. So this is a thing, which I didn't know at the time, where you know, if you don't have the right kind of fuel, like if you're from San Diego and they don't sell the right kind of fuel, um, it will freeze when the temperature gets really low. And so there we were on the side of the road, in this Volkswagen Rabbit, 40 degrees below zero, my mom and dad and I, and in the middle of nowhere, and wondering what we're going to do. My dad jumped out, and he got some uh, coats from the back, and we put those on, and that helped a little bit, but sitting in a car with no engine running, we were thinking, this is not going to go well. And you know how your mind does that. You start to play out, what's, how's this going to go down, you know? What's going to happen first, and then what's going to happen, and it just, it's not a happy thing. So we, we kind of sat there for a little while, waiting in that place of vulnerability. Would there be anybody to come and help us? And all of a sudden, I'm sitting in the back, there's these bright headlights coming right through the rear, the rear window. And so I turn around, and there's a big tow truck right there. And the driver gets out, and he walks up. My dad gets out, and they talk. And this tow truck is pulled over because he sees that we're in need. He's already got a car, so he's not going to be able to tow us. So he says, you know, this is bad enough. Well, I'm just going to push you to the next town. So we get back in the car, and uh, he literally pushed us for, I don't know, 10 miles or so on the highway uh, while he's towing another car until we got into town. And we're able to put the car into a warm uh, repair shop, and then the, the fuel melted, and we got the right fuel in it, and we were on our way, and everything was fine. But it was that moment when you're sitting on the side of the road and things are not looking good and you're wondering, you know, is somebody going to send in the cavalry to help us out? And those lights were the cavalry coming in to help us and give us a push. And I bring that up because um, the story of the book of Revelation is long and complicated in some ways. And I want you to understand that in the passage we're looking at today, it's kind of that, that moment. When everything is bleak and cold and dark and you're wondering what's going to happen next and it seems like there's no hope, but then all of a sudden there's a light that comes and gives you direction and the way forward. So um, we're going to look at the passage and I'm going to read chapter 14 uh, in a little bit, but I wanted to go back and help you get located in the moment in time. Now, the book of Revelation is of Jesus to the Apostle John to prepare him and the churches in that day and the churches in every day for their current season and also for the end times. So this is a book about the end times. And that's why, as we've been going through this, there's some wildness to it. There's some crazy moments. I'm sure there'll be moments today when you're like, where am I? As we're talking about what's happening in the book of Revelation. But if you just hang in there, it all holds together and it actually communicates a beautiful message about what it means to be an overcomer. That's what the book of Revelation is about. It's how to overcome the world. That's why we've given it this title. And it's a message of preparation and a message of victory. Victory through suffering at times, but a victory nonetheless. 
And so uh, what happens in the section that we've been looking at, we've been looking at the, in chapters 12 and 13, the cosmic battle between the dragon, who is the devil, and Satan is what it says. So all those terms can be used synonymously. And uh, in, in heaven with the angel Michael. Uh, so we called this out, a very important theological point, that the devil, the, the counterpart of the devil is not God. So if you've been thinking that, we need to reform that thought. It's, it's not God. The counterpart to the devil, the opposite, is the archangel Michael. And they battle it out in the heavenly realm. And Michael defeats the devil. And the devil gets cast out of heaven, and he ends up on the shore, sort of looking at the earth. Now, he's been trying to get at God because ultimately Satan wants to be God. That's his desire. It's the prideful desire. The pride is the center of all sin, and that's what, that's what drives Satan. But he gets tossed out of heaven after being defeated by Michael. And so uh, he looks around. He can't get at God, but maybe he can get at the image bearers, those who bear the image of God. That's you and I. That's humankind. All people bear the image of God. And so the enemy wants to come after us for that very fact. And so he tries to devise a plan. And this is something that we've seen in the book of Revelation that the enemy, Satan, is not very creative, and so what he does is he imitates what God does. So over on the God side, you know, we talk about God as the, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is the planner, the Son is the accomplisher, and then G, the Holy Spirit is the applier of all that, that Christ has accomplished to humanity. So the Holy Spirit glorifies the Son. They have this relationship together, this perfect communion. And I guess Satan says, well, that seems to have worked well. I'm going to try and duplicate that and woo humanity to worship me because that's what I long for. And so we have the dragon who is the counterpart of the father figure. And then there's a beast that's created from the sea, the counterpart of the Christ figure. And then another beast from the earth, the counterpart of the Holy Spirit. And they work in tandem to try to to try to woo the world into worship of them. The, second, the first beast becomes the focal point, and the second beast, just like the Holy Spirit, tries to, to apply people, to compel people to worship the first beast. And at the very end of what we were studying last time, the way in which that took place was by marking humanity, and this is the trope that you've heard over and over again, with 666, on the forehead, which is a symbolic uh, expression probably of Nero, who was the Caesar, the emperor at the time, who persecuted Christians, and he was an expression of that beast. And so it, the, the beast was trying to compel worship by marking the forehead and the hand of the people. And in that moment, what, what it meant to be a true follower of God was to resist that, to resist being marked with the 666, to resist coming into the worship of the beast. And, and that meant for the people of God that they would suffer persecution. It meant that they would look different from the world around them. It meant that they might be led into captivity. It meant that they were going to potentially suffer because of their rejection of all the, the trajectory of humanity, which was to worship the beast. And that's a good reminder for us that we need to be ready as the people of God to be different from the world around us, 
to not blindly follow along in what the world is doing. And it catches us by surprise because, because uh, there seems to be such this driving force oftentimes in the way that the world works and pursuing after the, you know, the American dream or, or, or acquiring the things that we acquire or, or trying to pursue comfort and control in life. These things rush us along and we forget that we're supposed to be different. I'll hold that thought. Anyway, the... The worshiping of the beast happen, and um, there's this bleak moment where it's the Babylonian captivity all over again, and the people are beholden to the beast, and and uh, the people of God are are resisting, and 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 you wonder what's going to happen. It's like us on the side of the freeway. What what's going to happen next? Is there any hope for this predicament that we're in? It's it's the dystopian vision. So all of the books that you've read about that, 1984 or uh, Brave New World, or Animal Farm, if you read that when you were a kid, or um, Lord of the Ring, or Lord of the Flies. I always say that, Lord of the Flies. Not Lord of the Rings, that's a good one. Lord of the Flies, um, you know, or, or some, you've seen like recently there's been this whole spate of sort of dystopian stories that have, that have come out, uh, you know, the Hunger Games and Divergent, and I'm probably behind like a generation or something there already because they're just coming out so fast. There's fascination with this world where there's this authoritative power that has everybody under its control, and how do you get out from under it? Well, that's the moment in time that we're, we're in right here. And the question is, is there going to be anybody to save us from that? And that's what chapter 14 is about. And I'm going to read that in a minute. But before I read it, I want to tell you a little bit of where it goes so that when I read it, hopefully it'll unfold for you a little bit better. So here's this moment. Everything is sort of hopeless. People are being marked across their foreheads with 666. Is there any hope? And then all of a sudden, chapter 14 begins with the Lamb of God appearing on Mount Zion. And he's arrayed with an army of 144,000, the people of God. And it's a number of perfection because it's 12,000, it's 12 times 12, it's a, it's a derivative of that. And so it's a number of the perfect number of the people of God. They've, they've, been, they've been completed and they're gathered together with Jesus on this scenery of devastation and captivity and about to engage in battle. And, and right before, there's this interesting moment, right before the angel flies over and calls out one more time, beckoning people to respond to the eternal gospel. So as the lamb is there arrayed with the 144,000, and they have on their foreheads the name of the Father and the Son, not the 666. And they're arrayed in their garments and they're, they're singing a new song. And they meet the battle by this song that comes out like a cascading, thunderous rush of harps and voices that overwhelms. And what it's going to say is that they're all virgins, and you, and you might think of that liter, literally, but what that's really referring to is that they have not given themselves to the worship of the beast. Remember in the book of Hosea, idolatry and adultery were correlated over and over again. Well, we have the same thing happening in the book of Revelation. They're called virgins because they haven't 
given themselves over to the worship of the beast. And so in that scene, you've got the devastation of the beast and the ones who are following him and the angel flying over, declaring the, the eternal gospel one more time, beckoning people to come. And then on Mount Zion, you have the triumphant lamb arrayed with the people of God. And, 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 and in that moment, what's going to happen next? The battle is ensuing. And that's where we pick up the story. So look with me in Revelation 14. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We will pass one to you. Revelation chapter 14. Looking in verse 1. We start in that moment where it seems that all is lost and the beast has won the day. Then, John writes, I looked. And there was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion. And with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder. The sound I heard was like harpists playing on their harps. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, but no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women. Here's where we're pushing the metaphor to its boundary. It's not talking about, about virginity necessarily. It's talking about idolatry. Okay, um, since they remained virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were redeemed for God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. So that's the scene on the hill, Mount Zion, standing before this rebellious world. Then I saw another angel flying high overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth. So right in that, as the, as the two sides are meeting for battle, there's one more cry for peace, one more attempt to, to bring people to the right side, to every nation, tribe, and language, and people. He spoke with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship the One who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. And another, a second angel followed, saying, It has fallen. Babylon the Great has fallen. She made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. And another, a third angel followed them and spoke with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath. And, and here's where the battle is met. Satan brings it to this point by his persistent rebellion and his leadership of those who would follow him. And so God finally brings the hammer, as it were. He will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength. In those days, wine would usually be cut in half with water or maybe even three to two water, or three to one water, but this is the full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and the sight of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. 
There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name, which is a total reversal because earlier you couldn't, you couldn't do anything in society unless you had the mark of, of 666. You were, you were sidelined and now it's completely reversed. This calls for endurance from the saints, verse 12, who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so they will rest from their labors since their works follow them. And continuing on to this, this, the finishing of this battle, the, the conclusion, this is powerful imagery that overwhelms to some degree. Then I looked and there was a white there was a white cloud, and one like the Son of Man was seated on the cloud with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. It's a reference to Christ. The Son of Man is a phrase that's used of Jesus. Verse 15, another angel came out of the temple, crying out in a loud voice to the one who was seated on the cloud, use your sickle and reap, for the time to reap has come since the harvest of the earth is ripe. So the one seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Then another angel, who also had a sharp sickle, came out of the temple in heaven. Yet another angel, who had authority over fire, came from the altar. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had a sharp sickle, Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the vineyard of the earth, because its grapes have ripened. The time has come. So the angel swung his sickle at the earth and gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the earth, and he threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. Then the press was trampled outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press up to the horse's bridles for about 180 miles. Literally, it says 1,600 stadia, which is probably the distance of Israel. So the point is that this is destruction. This is the final battle. This is the ultimate battle. Now, there are a number of things in this text that leap out to us, but probably the first one is we've got to grapple with this whole imagery of the wine press. My guess is if you're like me, it's fairly striking. What's interesting to me is this is the second time we've read this passage in a few weeks, because when, Don, when uh, Dr. Carson was here, he also read these verses. I, there are very few churches who've read this passage twice, <laughs> maybe ever, in their history, uh, and we've done it twice in the last couple of weeks. So, um, so we've got to grapple with this a little bit. This is powerful imagery, and you wonder why such powerful imagery, why such a stark message? And the root of it is in the character of God. God's holy, and we don't really understand the nature of God's holiness and how much sin is an offense to the holiness of God. That's part of it. It's also rooted in the choice of human beings. We are given responsibility. And one of the things that leaps out from this chapter is that there's only two sides. There's no middle ground. Either we're on the side of the beast or we're on the side of the lamb. It's a stark contrast. Those are the only options. Now, in this life, we have a window of time to make, to choose where we'll align. But at the end of the day, those are the, we'll end up aligning. If we don't make a choice, that will be a choice. And God has been patient over years and centuries to proclaim the message. And even here, right at the very end, he sends the angel 
right before it's all about to go down, one more time after all those prophets in the Old Testament and all that waiting and Jesus and being willing to go to the cross and die on our behalf and, and then all the church age and all the churches around the country that continue to proclaim the message of the gospel, after all that, there's one more time that the angel is sent flying, soaring above just to say, please, fear God. It's your last chance. What it tells us is that the stakes are high in this life. I mean, this really is a life and death thing. And that the decisions we make are eternal, and, and there's a consequence to that. And we forget that. And if you're like me, you need strong language to communicate how significant and important this is. When I was 15 or so, I took a driver's course and passed and got my driver's license on my 16th birthday, and, and that was great. Um, and then I had a little driving snafu one night where they required me to go back to class. Um, so I went back to driver class. And um, in this class, which was taught by a police officer who'd spent a couple of decades visiting accident sites, basically the gist of the class was, let me tell you all the horror stories that I've seen out there on the streets. And to this day, I have images in my mind from the stories that this police officer told that are seared into my conscience and actually truly have an impact on the way I drive. There would be moments when something would almost happen, I'd go, oh yeah, I remember that story, right? There's something about the human functioning where we can tell you that driving is dangerous, but until we really show you a picture of what can happen, it doesn't really sink in. And God knows that about us. And so as an act of grace, to use these powerful images and metaphors to sear into our consciences the, 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 the life and death nature of eternity. That's what God is doing. So that's why such strong language. That's why the, this powerful language. Because we won't get it otherwise. And it really matters. It really matters. It's an act of God's grace to speak with us such clarity, with such clarity. So, so how do we deal with the wine press? We need to understand that the stakes are really high, that God's been exceedingly patient, that there's only two sides, that we have to make a choice, that we have lots of time in which to make that choice, but we don't have forever. And the, the import of that is that as the people of God, we need to get moving in proclaiming the message of the gospel to the people around us. I keep seeing us in the image of that angel who flies by and calls the eternal gospel, sort of that last time. You know, we're that, we're that messenger. An angel is a messenger. We're the messengers of the gospel. That's why God has, that's what God has given to us as the church, to go out and proclaim the eternal good news, that there is a way of salvation, there's a way of being reconciled to God through the person of Jesus Christ who went to the cross to die an atoning sacrifice for sin so that the wrath of God could be poured out on him rather than on us. 
That's what the gospel is, and it's the message we've been given to proclaim because it's a message of salvation, a message of redemption, a message of hope, a message of eternal presence with God. So we have to get moving in declaring this message. If there's a part of this that causes us to be very sober-minded and and perhaps even a, a little bit overwhelmed, that's okay. We're to take that emotional energy and transform it into action in proclaiming the good news of Christ in word and deed. That's where that should go. That's what we've been given to do. Churches have life cycles, and in this life cycle, it seems that what God has been doing with the coming of Pastor Dante and our working through the, the discipleship pathway, God has been working on us to bring, if you use our discipleship pathway language, greater health. And, and I know that you know, what we need is we need to have our marriages set right. We need to have our parenting guided. We need to have our relationships healed. We need to deal with the, the baggage and the brokenness of our pasts. And the gospel, the good news of the gospel does that. And in this season, with the Gospel Academy courses, our study in the book of Hosea, the coming of Pastor Dante and Bev and their work with marriage, all of that, God is is working on the health quotient in our congregation. That's what we're seeing in a very powerful and and good way. In the next season, what we're seeing is a call to get going. So when I'm going to go away on sabbatical and come back more energized than you want me to be probably, I'm going to come back and, and be ready to go, and we're going to dive into the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is about the church going and being sent, and it's about the, the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's about the, the proclamation of the gospel. And it will be a time for us to live into the entailment of this reality, that there, there's two sides, and, and people need to hear the good news right now. And all these things we want to take place in our world, the, the healing that we want to see happening, the injustices righted, and you know, all of that that we want to see, that's all good and, and wonderful. But the way that that happens is when people's hearts are transformed on the inside. And that's what the gospel does. That's what God does in the person of Jesus Christ, is he brings transformation. And so that's going to be a part of our, our, our next season. And if you're here this morning and you have not decided uh, about the gospel, if you've, if you've heard the good news, but not yet come to align yourself with Jesus Christ, then let me just, let me just encourage um, that you think of this decision with great clarity. This is the biggest decision you ever make in your life. And your life is short. And you need to consider today. It's not a question you want to delay. I was biking down a hill the other day and somebody decided to do a U-turn on a blind corner. And I came around the corner 30, 40 miles an hour and and there's a car that almost stopped. And I thought to myself, wow, this could be over so quickly, right? It could be over so quickly. And we lose sight of that in our our comfort culture and the control that we have. 
but it's the reality. And so I want to compel you, I want to urge you from the scripture to, don't, to not to take this lightly, to make a decision. And, and for the people that you love who haven't decided and maybe you haven't shared the gospel with them, don't take it lightly. You don't have forever. One day, God is going to clean up all the mess and make everything right. And after that day, there's not going to be any more deciding. It will have been decided. And we need to live with that in mind. So let's get moving with the gospel. Let's proclaim the message of the good news. Let's be ready to be different. That's what this passage teaches us. That when the people didn't worship the beast, they looked very different to the world. And the world judged them and took them captive and sidelined them and marginalized them. And you know what? It's okay if that happens to us as well. And it just might, and we need to be ready for it. Because we need to be ready to stay true and not to worship the idols of money or sex or academic prowess, Bay Area, right? Approval, comfort, control. Satan uses all of these as a toehold to get into our lives. We've got to be ready to be different. And then we have to live into our identity. Look with me in verses 2 and 3. I heard a sound from heaven. This is, this is Christ on Mount Zion with the people of God. I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder. The sound I heard was like harpists playing on their harps. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. But no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Now, how many of you think that music and song has to do with identity? Right? I mean, just watch. We've got teenagers in the house. I mean, the connection between a sense of identity and music is very powerful. Music wells up from the deepest parts of who we are. The song that just bursts forth out of us communicates what we really think and understand about who we are and about what life is. And what this is saying is that God is placing in the deepest parts of us a new song, His song, a beautiful song, a song of creation and a song of redemption. And we've been learning it but we still only know the first verse or the first line of the first verse. We're just learning the melody, but we have all eternity to learn the other verses and the harmonies and the instrumentation, and it's going to be placed in the deepest parts of who we are, and we're going to sing it, and it's going to shape who we understand ourselves to be. We walk through this world learning the new song and singing it more and more as it settles into our hearts. Hard to talk about these, these kinds of things. They're, they're deep and, and rich. I was watching the John Adams series, you know, the second president, and the HBO did a series on this. And John Adams was a person who was very driven, and he didn't really stop to smell the roses, and he didn't have sort of the global picture sometimes of the spiritual things. But as he got older and he settled down, 
um, he seemed to get a greater appreciation. And there's this beautiful scene at the end of the HBO series. I don't know if it really happened or not, but they're capturing you know, something that went on. And I want to describe to you what happened. He's walking in the field with his son, John Quincy Adams, who also became president. He's 90 years old after living a hard-driving kind of life. And he says this. He says, your mother, he says to his son, said that I never delighted in the mundane. But now I find if I look at even the smallest thing, my imagination begins to roam the Milky Way. And, and in this moment, in the scene, he's looking at a dandelion, this little wispy nothing. He says, when I, when I regard that, when I take into consideration what it really is, my mind starts to roam the Milky Way. Rejoice evermore, he says. I wish that, I'd al- that that had always been in my heart and on my tongue. Rejoicing at what is. I feel an irresistible impulse to fall on my knees in adoration right here. And then he starts to fall on his knees and his son picks him up. Because in that moment, after a lifetime of learning and understanding, he's starting to get the big picture of what God has done, both in creation and redemption. And the song of creation and redemption is starting to take root in his heart in a new way. Friends, we don't have to wait until we're 90 to be singing this song. We can start singing it now. It can take root in our hearts and shape our days and press us forward. And the song, it was already sung early, earlier in the book of Revelation. In the throne room, the elders and the lamb and, 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 and all the saints, they sing it. They, they sing a new song, and here's the song. It says, you are worthy to take the scroll to the lamb and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased a people. For God, by your blood, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. And Lord, that is the song that we want to sing this morning. It's the song we hope you will place deep in our hearts. The song of the story of creation and redemption that points to your glory as the creator and the redeemer. And when the world is playing all kinds of different songs, we want to hone in on this one, to have it shape the way we move through the world and the way we think about people, the way we think about ourselves, who we view we are and what our role is. We want to proclaim this song, this message to the world as you give us strength because of the eternal power that it speaks of to bring restoration and redemption and forgiveness and healing in life. To be the people of God is an awesome privilege. To be charged with singing this song is an awesome task. But you are there 
with us. And you are helping and you are singing through us. Let the mighty cascade of this song, the thunderous harp-infused vocalizations of the people redound in the world around us. Speaking of your glory, bringing healing, freedom to the captives, good news to the poor, for every tribe and tongue and language. That's our hope, Lord. With that in mind, we come to the table today knowing that this awesome, powerful Christ also was willing to lay down his life for us. And so on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We invite you to this table. If you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, if he's your Lord and your Savior, that's the appropriate response to God is to put faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. If it's true of you, this is a table which is open to you. Come and take the bread, dip it in the cup, and be reminded of God's work on the cross. Be reminded of the contours of this beautiful song that you are only beginning to learn, that you will be singing for all eternity. The table is open. Brothers and sisters, come and enjoy. Amen.